This podcast is brought to you by PennyMac TPO. PennyMac is committed to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, the mortgage industry, and the community, including the promotion of affordable and sustainable home ownership. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC. Equal housing lender. NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. Myths and stereotypes. I'd say that it can be very easy for people to think that discrimination is something that happened a lot more in the past or that its effects are a lot lot less salient for people today. But unfortunately, the research shows us that that just isn't true. Instead, the research shows that discrimination and stigma against LGBTQ people continues to persist, and it persists across the life course. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. I'm Katie Jensen, staff writer for American Business Media. This is Gated Communities, sponsored by PennyMac, where we'll be talking about gatekeeping, redlining, company culture, and how to actually help underserved borrowers. Our guest today, Luis Vasquez, is a scholar of law at the Williams Institute. The Williams Institute is a public policy research institute based at the UCLA School of Law. Vasquez's work focuses solely on state and federal laws, policies, and regulations impacting LGBTQ people with a particular focus on issues related to discrimination, immigration, housing, the needs of LGBTQ people of color, and the criminalization of people living with HIV. Luis, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So can we start off by explaining why LGBTQ people um, start at a disadvantage when it comes to home buying or getting a rental? Uh, Yes, thank you. That's a really great question. I think it's important for us when we're discussing this community uh, to really start off by trying to dispel any stereotypes or myths that people might be coming into the conversation with, because we find that that's something that's been really frequent when it comes to the LGBTQ community. Uh, And so when we're talking about their experiences with home buying or even getting rentals, I think it's very easy for folks to have this image in their head of affluence, of an educated population, you know, can very easily obtain housing that might even obtain it at a greater rate than their straight cisgender counterparts. But what happens when we look at the research is we see a much different picture that, like you said, really shows us that instead they're coming to this from a place of disadvantage rather than a place of advantage. Uh, And so the first body of research that I think that we can look at to really give us a sense of what might be going on here is research on some of the classic indicators of poverty uh, and what LGBTQ people are facing. And so here at the Williams Institute, We do a lot of research uh, analyzing data, and we looked at a data set that was collected prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, so reflecting, you know, perhaps more normal trends. Uh, And what we found is that LGBTQ people were more likely to report being unemployed when compared to the national average. It was almost double the rate, uh, 8.1% compared to the national average of 4.1%. And so already, just such a high degree of unemployment compared to the rest of the population is likely going to inform why they're less likely to be homeowners. But when we start looking at under other indicators, we start getting even more of a sense of what might be happening here. And so, for example, uh, through a survey that we helped conduct, uh, we asked whether people were living in a low-income house 
households. Uh, knowing that at the time, the general U.S. population would answer that question in the affirmative at around 30.4%. And what we found is that when transgender people and cisgender, lesbian, bisexual, and queer women answered that question, they reported yes at almost a 48% rate. So just about half of that population was saying that they were living in low-income households. And so again, these individuals are going to be much likely to be unemployed. The people that are living with them also aren't reporting high incomes. And then, of course, what this translates into in the housing context in particular is often experiences with homelessness. And what we found time and again in various studies is that LGBTQ people are more likely to be homeless. And when we start breaking that down into particular subpopulations, we find even greater degrees of homelessness. So, for example, uh, we know that when we look at just sexual minorities and we take out transgender people, the homelessness rate of having experienced homelessness at least once in your lifetime is 16.9%. And at the time that we conducted that survey for the general population, it was 6.2%. So already a much greater likelihood. But then for transgender people, that percentage goes up even further still. And so what we're seeing is, again, just all of these indicators showing that LGBTQ folks are coming to this place of wanting and needing to buy a home, but not really having, you know, the economic stability to be able to do so. And these are just some of the indicators that we can look at. Uh, but unfortunately, the issue doesn't just stop there for LGBTQ people. And so in addition to this research on indicators of poverty, I think it's also important for us to quickly look at some of the research that we have on discrimination that LGBTQ people are facing that not only can exacerbate some of the economic instability but can also inform why they're living in such states in the first place. And so, of course, when we think about discrimination that LGBTQ people are facing, uh, going back to that notion of dispelling myths and stereotypes, I'd say that it can be very easy for people to think that discrimination is something that happened a lot more in the past or that its effects are a lot, are a lot less salient for people today. But unfortunately, the research shows us that that just isn't true. Instead, the research shows that discrimination and stigma against LGBTQ people continues to persist and it persists across the life course. And so what we're seeing, for example, is uh, according to a recent study of ours with data that was collected uh, in 2021, so pretty recently, uh, we found that around 31.1% of LGBT respondents were reporting experiencing discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity in the workplace within the last five years. And so again, this is something where their experiences of being LGBTQ are having an impact on them in the workplace, which of course, if they then are fired or receive, you know, less hours, less pay or anything like that, it's certainly going to have an immediate impact on their ability to be home buyers. But discrimination that they might experience in other contexts is also going to help, uh, you know, reinforce what those experiences might look like. And so, for example, if a transgender person experiences discrimination while, while attempting to obtain health care, that might then inform their decision to not try to go and buy a house because they're now afraid they're going to encounter discrimination in that context as well. And so this is something that only continues to compound over and over across the life course. Uh, but as a final point here that I'd like to make is when we're thinking about 
these experiences, these adverse experiences that LGBTQ people are having throughout their lives, we can look to the fact that they start very, very early on to help inform why we've got these high rates of homelessness and then in turn why we might have these lower rates of home buying. And that's the fact that LGBTQ people report high experiences of familial rejection. And so unfortunately what we see is that what this can translate out to in the real world and in the context of being able to get housing is that for some people it might mean that you're going to leave your home before you feel ready to. And in particular, before you feel financially ready to, which could then have impacts down the line as to, you know, what the first place that you rent looks like, whether you're then able to save up money to buy a home later on. It definitely could have an impact, just the fact that you don't have a place that you can stay at home like many people are able to depend on these days. But in addition to that, you might, because of experiencing rejection, not be able to depend on family resources when it is time for you to buy a home. We know that this is something that can have an impact for example, in the context of people also trying to start small businesses and doing other things where it's somewhat, you know, the pattern and the practice to look to your family for resources, for connections, for help. This is something that a lot of LGBTQ people, unfortunately, just don't have. And so while some of the research here is limited, we certainly do get a sense that all of this together makes it a lot more difficult for LGBTQ people to be homeowners. And in turn, what we're seeing in some of the existing data is indeed that they are less likely to be homeowners when compared to the general population. I thought it was fascinating that they brought up in the study the fear of rejection since it starts at a very young age. Society in general rejects this community. So when they go into um, home ownership and start home shopping, they think, well, of course, I'll be rejected. I'll be discriminated against in this way. I think that's a very um, interesting psychological aspect of the situation and something people in the industry would have to think about overcoming and how to overcome that, their fear and their vulnerability in order to really reach out to them. Oh, absolutely. And I think in addition to that, it's important to even have an awareness that that fear could be a factor for some people. And so, for example, I'm aware of a study uh, that surveyed members of the National Association of Gay and Lesbian Real Estate Professionals, and it asked them whether they believed that their LGBT clients fear discrimination and that was having an impact on them becoming homeowners. And for that population, real estate professionals being themselves LGBTQ, of course, they're likely going to be keeping an eye out for them. It's something that might actually talk to their clients about. And so they were able to report back that, yes, they believed about 58 percent of them uh, that were having this experience with their clients. But for other professionals that don't have that awareness of the issue, they might not know to ask to look for this and then to really try to account for it, to try to really make sure that this isn't happening to more and more people, uh, to even block them out when discrimination might not even be something that actually happens to them. It's just the fear getting in the way, definitely. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the study points out that this is a very real fear. There have been um, cases of explicit discrimination when it comes to rental sales and mortgage lending. For example, a same-sex female couple was asked to leave a bank and even to close their existing accounts while filling out an application to refinance their home because of a bank policy to, quote, not offer home loans to gay applicants. When I read that, I was completely shocked that something like that would be allowed. Um... I have to ask, um, was there a specific reason to not name the bank in the study? 
Uh, no, so in that, I think that we were just trying to report back some of the information from the case. Uh, that one is it's an example from a case that a lot of folks like to point to. Uh, but we just use it as one example uh, of what this might look like. In terms of looking at more systemic practices and things like that, I would say that the research is lacking right now to really be able to pin down what might be going on. But that's why some work is being done right now to try to get access to more data and more information to see are some of these systemic issues happening and at the level of some of these banks where then maybe some, you know, interventions might be appropriate. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, often what we've had to work with when we're looking at this particular issue is just what's happening in specific cases or in particular contexts. Or often uh, in some of this research, what's being reported through surveys uh, where individuals aren't going to provide, you know, identifying information like that. They're just going to say, here's what my experience Right. I see. I see. So regardless, I'm shocked that something like that is even legal. Yeah. And so unfortunately, what we found is that over time, you know, I would say that definitely the discrimination that we see, it's a lot of different kinds. We might see these more overt examples, like what mm -hmm. you're pointing out here. Uh, certainly not even just in the context of people going to lenders uh, for, you know, a home, but also even just trying to obtain a rental. Certainly there's a lot of examples and cases of people being told that, oh, your relationship is too unique for our community. We don't take your kind here. Mm -hmm. There might be references to religion being made. And so certainly we're going to see people doing this even when certain legal protections might exist. You know, I, I would highlight the fact that uh, some of these cases certainly are older, but it's been pretty clear for a number of years now, at least that some of these federal level protections uh, do protect against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in credit and lending. And yet we will still see this discrimination carried out. And for some, it certainly might be that they don't understand that that's what the protections that exist do. It might be that some individuals candidly don't care mm -hmm. that that's what the discrimination uh, protections do, that they still feel that it's something that is appropriate or is their right to do. And I think the fact that so many LGBTQ people report experiencing discrimination across a number of contexts context shows that certainly, regardless of what the protections are like, a lot of people are going to be engaging in discrimination, but that only increases, you know, the importance of these protections to really try to stamp that out when it is occurring. And kind of like you highlighted, if it is something that's happening at a more systemic level, that then appropriate interventions could be taken to try to stop that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to point out another study. There are multiple studies mentioned, but in another study by HUD, the test involves sending emails from matched pairs to housing providers that advertised online one-bedroom apartments. The emails had similar language, were, for, were from someone in a committed relationship, and disclosed the sexual orientation of the couple via gender-specific names and relationship terminology. Male and female same-sex couples were less likely to receive favorable responses to their inquiries than different-sex couples. Specifically, different-sex couples were favored over male, same-sex couples in 15.9% of field tests and favored over female same-sex same couples in 15.6% of tests. So those are some shocking results. Uh, yes, and unfortunately, it reflects, like I was saying, the fact that we really are seeing persistent discrimination in so many different contexts. But the more overt that this is being made, it certainly might induce some just 
think that they can now start engaging in certain forms of discrimination. And then, as I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit, uh, there have been studies that have really allowed us to look at some of the data to see what this looks like in practice when it comes to things like the fees that people are paying. And we're also mm -hmm. seeing a difference there. And so, unfortunately, all of these uh, instances of stigma and discrimination only continue to compound over time to make this entire enterprise of, you know, trying to buy a home and really invest in yourself and the life of your family life is something that's, that could be quite difficult for LGBTQ people. So one question I have to ask, and I'm sure the audience is asking in their heads, how do lenders know they are lending to a same-sex couple? So I'd say that this is something that often it goes back again to this idea of stereotypes, right? That a lot of it is making assumptions. And so in the example that you gave on that HUD study, for example, mm -hmm. the way that they tried to really convey the message that, hey, you are being reached out to by a same sex or a different sex couple is the fact that these two people were applying for a one bedroom apartment. And so in the home buying context, for example, you might have a lender that sees an application by two men and it's for, you know, a small one family home. They might make the assumption that this that these two men are in a relationship or if when they're in uh, and they're filling out the application and in for an appointment, they start talking about a shared child or about schools or just having any of the kinds of discussions that people might have about a family, about trying to buy a home together as a couple. It might lead to these assumptions being made, even if that information isn't directly being asked, even if it isn't being volunteered that these people are LGBTQ. Uh, because certainly, uh, you know, the state of the law right now, uh, lenders, when they're taking in these applications, are required to collect uh, certain bits of information from applicants pursuant to federal law, uh, in part to, you know, help with deterring against discrimination and finding out what are some of the trends that are happening in lending. And unfortunately, Right now, it's the case that information on sexual orientation and gender identity isn't being collected. And, and so I, I say unfortunately there, uh, because what we see is in other contexts, when privacy protections exist, that information usually isn't used to do harm. Instead, it allows us to do research and find out if discrimination might be happening, even, you know, what could have been happening even in the absence of that information being collected. So it certainly can be helpful for that information to be safely and appropriately collected. Uh, but what we have here in the lending context is often that question isn't being asked. And so instead, it's just, do we have a couple that is applying, you know, for this mortgage loan? And does it seem to be somebody, a couple that might be in a relationship? If that assessment is being made by the lender, then it might, you know, lead them to start making determinations like, oh, I suppose this couple is LGB. I suppose I might be able to discriminate against them and so on and so forth. Uh, but of course, something that I would like to highlight is that a lot of the research that we have flows out of this fact. It flows out of the fact that uh, these data collections do collect information on gender and they do collect information on whether there are two applicants. And so we've been able to create studies looking at the experiences of same-sex couples compared to different sex couples, but that isn't very many LGBT people when we're thinking about the total population here in the U.S. And so we've previously estimated that all of that, it's only only about 2 million LGBT adults in the U.S. are in cohabitating couples. And so these data and these studies are still excluding the experiences of nearly 9 million LGBT adults here in the country, where they could be having similar experiences with discrimination. They could be having worse experiences with discrimination. But unfortunately, we don't have particularly easy ways to figure out 
who they are in these data sets that do exist that look at experiences of discrimination because those questions on what their sexual orientation or gender identity might be just aren't being asked. Don't miss the nation's largest show for successful mortgage pros. Originator Connect returns to Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, August 18th through the 21st. See us at OriginatorConnect.com. It's simply the greatest mortgage conference in the known universe. OriginatorConnect.com. Absolutely, I agree that this should all be investigated even further because the results are really shocking. I'm wondering um, if people, if same-sex couples withhold information um, from housing providers so they aren't discriminated against in a similar way that African-Americans and minorities might try to whitewash their homes or leave or withhold information um, to not let an appraiser or a lender know that they are a, min- a minority. I wonder if you if you've ever heard of that. I haven't, uh, but something that I would highlight, and, and you know, I, I briefly previewed this earlier, is the fact that we have research uh, that has tried to look at just some of the really hard numbers in this area, and has tried to uh, control for all possible factors that look into whether or not people are experiencing discrimination. And what they found is such evidence of consistent, persistent discrimination against same-sex couples in lending scenarios that I would I would find it very difficult to believe that simply, you know, trying to engage in some of those covering behaviors would completely get rid of experiences of discrimination. Certainly we know in other contexts like employment that individuals do engage in covering. They do try to hide other people from even finding out what their sexual orientation or gender identity could be. Since we know that discrimination isn't just based on, you know, people's actual knowledge, it can often be based on perception. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, we find that covering doesn't always account for all of it. Covering can't completely get rid of that possibility that people will encounter discrimination. And so what some what some of this research has tried to do is try to find lenders where basic or applicants where basically everything about them is a hundred percent the same, or at least as close to the same as you could get within the data set. And then trying to compare what their experiences have been like. And indeed these studies are still finding that the same sex couples are encountering, you know, higher rates of discrimination through experiences like being more likely to be declined to be extended a loan, experiencing greater uh, fees and rates that they have to pay. Uh, And this is even in cases where, say, the federal government is insuring the underlying loan. And so there isn't, you know, as much risk to the lender. And in instances where the area is the same, the amount of the loan is the same, unfortunately, it really does look like you can control for so many things, and yet discrimination is still likely to find you in this context. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about evidence of systemic discrimination in the study, um, one of the major points or the key takeaways is that it found compared to different sex borrowers of similar profiles, same sex borrowers experience a three to three to 8% lower approval rate. How, how do we know for a fact that that is systemic discrimination? Were there any laws or policies throughout history that expi- explicitly discriminated against LGBTQ people, similar to how African-Americans were discriminated against? Because a lot of people think of systemic discrimination in that way. Well, there was a law before that said they must be segregated and that has an impact on how housing is for them today. Can you kind of explain just systemic discrimination for the LGBTQ community and how that works? 
Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so I would say that in this context, at least, you know, to my knowledge, unfortunately, this particular area isn't as much my field of study. And so I don't know too much about the historical statutes that have existed here in this area. Uh, but, but I can talk to the fact that generally speaking, we've existed in a legal system that has disapproved of LGBTQ people, that has criminalized their engaging in consensual conduct with one another that isn't criminalized for non-LGBTQ people uh, that you know has criminalized and prevented uh, the even mentioning of their identities in schools and other settings and so well I would say that even if it is the case that there haven't been specific laws that say you know you don't give loans uh, to uh, you know a same-sex couple by banks even if there isn't a law that read like that in the past I would still surmise based on the laws that have actively criminalize the conduct of LGBTQ people and in fact they continue to do so in many states you know on the basis of their living with HIV for example uh, on the basis of you know disproportionate sex offender requirements uh, depending on the gender of the other partner I'd say that there's certainly been a long history in the United States of the legal system being used to discriminate against LGBTQ people. It has only really created this culture, like I've mentioned before, of people thinking that it is okay to discriminate against them. So there doesn't necessarily need to be a policy. You are just able to make that individual decision at every single turn. And even when it's complained about, no changes are made. Uh, because certainly, again, one of the areas where we have a lot of research on discrimination is in the context of employment. And what we know frequently happens there is that it isn't just, you know, co-workers or customers that engage in discrimination. It's also managers and supervisors and the institutions that help that discrimination to persist and proliferate and that won't do anything when it is being called out by LGBTQ people. And so certainly I'd say that then when we see in research looking at the practices of banks now, looking at recent data that's still showing such disparate experiences for same-sex couples, that that's still indicating that clearly something is going on. When even though we are accounting for every single possible factor, it shouldn't make any sense that these couples are having different, such different experiences compared to different sex couples. But of course, we know that the one difference they do have is that they are a same-sex couple. And so that, again, seems to suggest that there is something happening. But unfortunately, the research needs to continue to really help us understand what might be happening, uh, you know, across all mm -hmm. of these different settings. So I just want to um, add on to that, that among the loans approved, same-sex borrowers were charged higher interest rates and or fees equivalent to between 8.6 and 86 million more in interest and fees over time. Yet they did not find statistical evidence that same-sex borrowers were more risky borrowers than comparable different sex borrowers. So no reason for this type of discrimination. But I'd like to ask, at this point in your research, do you think this is more of a systemic issue or do you think there are bad actors mainly making these decisions? No, I, I would certainly say that it is a systemic issue. And part of that it is definitely informed by the lack of clarity that exists around what is and isn't prohibited by state and federal law in this area. And so what we know now is it seems fairly clear that at the federal level, 
the Equal Credit Opportunity Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in credit and lending. Uh, but that's an understanding that has evolved over multiple years to go from folks asserting that that was the reading of the law to now it being a pretty clear and consistent understanding of most in this area that that is what the law says. And so, for example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau had indicated an informal guidance back in 2016 that this was their view. But now that we skip forward to 2022, they've taken further regulatory action to make that even more clear. And yet, though, if you look at the actual text of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, it doesn't explicitly say that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity are prohibited. And so certainly it could be the case that there are banks out there that don't have that understanding because they're only looking at the text of the statute versus looking at these regulations that, like I said, have been building up over multiple years. And that certainly there's still more work that could be done to further clarify for covered entities what they're requirements and responsibilities are under the law with respect to this type of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I want to bring up uh, another point that I thought was fascinating from this study. The report mentions in multiple places that same-sex male couples are more likely to be mistreated and or discriminated against compared to same-sex female couples. I have to ask, why is that? So this is something that we're still working to understand. Unfortunately, something that has, is always limiting us is the availability of data. And in particular, how much we're able to use that data to look at people's different intersecting identities and, and to see what existing along these intersections might do for somebody. And so, for example, uh, we know that for um, sexual minority women, their experiences can look very different to that of men in various contexts. And so like you said here, it looks like men are actually more likely than women to be reporting you know, discrimination in home buying. But then when we take a step back and look at other indicators, we actually see a much different picture. Uh, so earlier, for example, I had mentioned that in one of our surveys, sexual minority women and transgender people uh, were reporting living in a high income or a low income household at an almost 50% rate. Uh, well, when you look at a sexual minority men, their rate was almost exactly that of the general U.S. population. And so even though they are having greater experiences with discrimination in some contexts, that isn't then translating into their living in lower income households. Uh, similarly, we might see that for sexual minority women, uh, they might be more likely to experience discrimination, say, in the workplace uh, than their male counterparts are. But then when we start separating out by a specific uh, gender identity or specific sexual orientation, we start seeing even more differences arise still at how often it's the experiences of bisexual people, regardless of gender identity, that are driving a lot of these disparities. And so I would say that to the extent that we do have this research indicating that sexual minority women might be encountering less discrimination, I'd say our takeaways from that should be that one, we need more quality data to help us really understand what might be going there, whether there might be subpopulations that aren't being included in the data and that when we control just for them, that the experiences might actually look more like what we're expecting. Or again, it could be just that other factors are playing a role. Uh, we could see, for example, the fact that uh, we know in some contexts there's, there's often a hypothesis that some individuals uh, are fine or less alarmed with 
a same-sex female couple than they are a same-sex male couple. And so it could be that when a couple is going in for a home loan, even though the lender isn't asking about their sexual orientation, if they see two men, they make the assumption that they are a same-sex romantic couple. But if they see two women, they don't make that assumption and therefore don't engage in the type of discrimination they would have if they did think that they were that kind of a couple. Unfortunately, we do still need to do more research into that, but certainly there could be a lot of factors at play here and not something that's quite so simple, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would assume that, yes, before we even started talking, when I read that, I thought, well, you know, females typically do live together. They share an apartment or they can share at home. Maybe they thought it was odd that two males would do um, a similar thing. But I mean, younger people nowadays generally live with their friends before, you know, starting a family and so forth. But that would be interesting to see where that bias um, is coming from. So you said, yeah, you said earlier um, that there is no Im- there's a lack of explicit language um, outlawing people from discriminating against, um, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, do you suggest that that should actually be written language within the Civil Rights Act? Yes, absolutely. And so there's actually legislation that's pending right now at the federal level, the Equality Act, that would do that. Uh, so the aim of the Equality Act would be to go into a number of different civil rights statutes. So it would include the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, as well as laws in contexts like employment, housing, uh, education programs, juries. And it would update those discrimination protections to make it explicit that sexual orientation and gender identity are included. Uh, until we reach that point where those statutes are explicitly amended, uh, you know, we are very much limited by what the agencies that help interpret and enforce those statutes are doing. And so, as I mentioned before, here in the credit and lending context, certainly it it is very important that CFPB has already taken steps. And it seems to be that they're going to take even more steps uh, to make it clear in their regulations that, yes, uh, this type of discrimination is encompassed by the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. This is prohibited conduct by by covered lenders. Uh, But until the actual law itself is amended, I'm always going to continue to say that there's more work that could be done there. Uh, and then, of course, that's only the federal level law. There are laws in states uh, on credit and lending. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, only 30 states or so have these laws in their books. And when we look at them, only about half of those cover sexual orientation and gender identity expressly. And so we need to have the additional states add in sexual orientation, gender identity, as well as having all the remaining states without these statutes to begin with to create their own protections to really ensure that people are fully insulated from this. So let's say a same-sex couple um, from one of these states or localities, states or localities um, that does not address um, gender identity discrimination, and they believe that they were discriminated against by their housing provider or landlord What steps um, should they take at that point to help themselves, to help protect themselves? Is um, Is there anything that they can do? Uh, Yes. So uh, I would say the two things that are important to do first is always uh, to simply try to look into what your state law might be in this area. Uh, I mentioned before, of course, that only half of those states expressly cover sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, But the remaining half, 
uh, it looks like they do have sex written into their statutes. And so it's likely that those would be read consistent with our current understanding of the federal law. And so would uh, cover sexual orientation, gender identity, regardless, just as an as an encompassing, uh, you know, as an understanding that the statute does include those. And so they might still have some level of protections or they might exist in a state where, say, one of their other civil rights statutes uh, in a different context, for example, like a public accommodation statute might be written in a way that still provides protections for them. So I would encourage everyone to look into what their state level, usually it's a human rights commission or a civil rights commission that helps interpret and enforce these laws to look at what their reading of the state law is to get a better understanding of what might be happening and what they might be protected against. Uh, but then beyond that, as I mentioned before, there is still the federal level law. And so that's going to cover any listeners in the United States who might be encountering these issues. And so even if they live in the locality that doesn't provide their own protections, the federal level law is currently being interpreted uh, consistent with Supreme Court precedent and other existing you know, legal authorities that say that, yes, even though the Equal Credit Opportunity Act doesn't say sexual orientation and doesn't say gender identity, it does protect against discrimination motivated by both of those bases. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And if we put on our, our marketing caps for a bit, I know you don't work in the mortgage industry, but if you could entertain this question, um, what advice would you have for loan originators, brokers, lenders, people in the industry um, who are maybe non-LGBTQ but would like to reach out to the community? Um, what are some ways that could make them um, feel welcome, feel like they are advocated? Because as we said before, fear is a big factor for LGBT clients. Yes, absolutely. And that's a great question. I think that the most important thing is always education. And so whether that's education just internally to ensure that you all and your team members have an understanding of this population, again, like we've had been discussing during our conversation today, some of the underlying social factors that they might be coming to you with that can just help inform your interactions with them is always really helpful. Uh, but even beyond that, there are certainly a lot of formal training programs uh, that everyone can invest in to help ensure that services are being provided in an LGBTQ inclusive way and being able to signal to any you know potential customers and applicants that that's what you're doing, showing them that you've already put in that work before they've even come to you and set a foot in the door to help them feel understood and accepted and like they aren't going to have an experience of discrimination, I think is going to be really powerful and might help a lot of people that could otherwise feel discouraged from coming to you and trying to start down this journey of home buying. Feel like, oh no, maybe I will try despite some of these other experiences that I've had. If I know that I'm going to somebody that at least has put in that work is a little more understanding, even if it isn't perfect, at least there's something we can work with. I, I really do think that's powerful to a lot of people in this population that, like I've said, has just dealt with so much persistent stigma and discrimination that really any signal of being supportive and being active allies really is going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you would like to say to the mortgage industry um, in reference to LGBTQ um, housing discrimination people who either don't believe it, is, it exists or have never heard of this before? What would you like them to take away from this episode? 
Um, I, I would really just highlight the importance again of education, but specifically about what's stated in the law. As I said, while certainly it's been the case that over the last couple of years, more and more actors involved in this industry and in its regulation have come to understand this notion that existing law already prohibits against sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination in credit and lending. It certainly is very crystal clear now following the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, following regulatory activity by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, about what exactly the law says here. And so I think that there really shouldn't be any hesitation in doing the work to ensure that notices are updated, that the information is out there so that all of the, you know, possible actors that you have under your purview are proceeding appropriately uh, and concurrently with the law and what those requirements are, because those requirements have long existed. Uh, you know, entities are used to this type of regulation. They now simply need to make sure that their existing efforts are encapsulating sexual orientation, gender identity and experiences of LGBTQ people as well. Absolutely. And I would like to add as a last note that these are good borrowers. Um, stats show that they pay their bills. They're very good borrowers. There's really no reason that they should be underserved. So opening up your business to them would really be profitable for about anybody. For more info on LGBTQ housing discrimination, please visit the Williams Institute website or check out the study LGBT people in housing affordability, discrimination and homelessness. Thank you, Luis, for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wildside by Saint Society, and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. This podcast was brought to you by PennyMac TPO. Visit tpo.pennymac.com to learn more about becoming a partner and starting your journey to greatness.